feels like this is the opening of some TV show, you know, like some undercover cop TV show, whatnot, with gifts with that. <laughs> well, are we going undercover someplace right now? What's going on? What are we listening to? Well, you know, it's really funny that you say that because it is kind of like that 1970s, um, that kind of badass cop who, uh, you know, doesn't play by the rules <laughs> kind of thing. Um, right. Exactly, yes. Well, that, don't, uh, that that song definitely has strut, it has swagger to it. Uh, well, this is one of my new favorite bands called the, the Black Pumas. Um, uh, this is two really great musicians. Well, there's a whole band, but the main two musicians are Eric Burton, who's a singer, and Adrian Casada, who is a guitarist. And I picked it um, because I think it really does vibe in with our wines today, um, which are the wines not just of Burgundy, but specifically one producer, which is Albert Pichot, and uh, these are all the 2020 barrel samples. Well, not all of these four, but you got two line, lines, I got two lines, which is different for us. Um, but I chose it because, well, first of all, Aaron Casada has this real cool kind of punchy mid-range tone to, uh, to, his, to his songs or, or to his playing, and it has to do with the Telecaster he's playing with and, and how he works his EQ, but that punchy mid-range to me is like the tannic structure, especially with the reds that we're going to be drinking. The horns in the background are like the acidity um, it just kind of pops and flashes. The uh, the vocal styling of Eric Burton, which is, to me, has this kind of almost old school um, 1970s guess who, but Nina Simone intonation is just smooth. And uh, you know, the song is called Fire from their debut album called Black Pumas. And 2020 was the hottest vintage on record in Burgundy, hotter than 2003. Um, and so I thought, these lines are on fire. They are on fleek, as my daughter would not say. She would get really mad at me for saying that. Hey, you know, hey. Well, she's going to get mad at you for something anyway. She's a teenager, isn't she? Or close enough where it's... Yeah, yeah, you know, she's a, she's a teenager. She just turned 15. We celebrated her quinceanera yesterday. Nice. Well, no, we had... We had barbecue at um, this place in, in Bedford, Mass. That was about it. But... That can be a celebration. What's the issue with that? I don't see any problems. Uh, the, the one problem is that we forgot to introduce ourselves again. This is Bottom of the Bottle. I'm Adam Cataldo. He's Manny Gonzalez. We always forget to do this. I don't know why, but that is who we are. It's get part of our charm at this point for like the yeah, 13 people. I, I tend to ramble a little bit, so I don't know if you've noticed that over the last year. We've been doing this for a year now. We're on season I know. two. Season two. That's just, it's amazing, season two. Exactly. We can yeah, still so, <laughs> so we're, we're, we're drinking some wines from Albert Bichot, who's um, one of my favorite producers in Burgundy. And these are all some barrel samples that we got from the winery. Um, you know, just basically kind of a, a foreshadow of what the 2020 vintage will be like once the wines are finished in bottle and shipped out, which will be arriving here in Massachusetts. Um, probably mid to late July or early August, depending on, you know, how the stupid um, trucking and shipping issues are, are going. Supply chain, it's yeah. real. So what what do we mean by unfinished? So when you say unfinished, what what is that? I mean, they're barrel samples. So I mean, that, that's a literal thing. It's the, they stuck a, a, a tool in the barrel, pulled out some wine and bottled it and shipped it to us. But, but what's the difference between the barrel sample that we're having right now and the finished wine, you know, six months from now? I, I don't know. 
<laughs> different labels, bigger labels. Um, you know, definitely when you let a wine, well, first of all, I'll kind of hold it up. Obviously this is audio, but for some little video promos, we'll have it. These are little glass toppers. These are super adorable. These are 187 millimeters or, or milliliters, which is basically just around just past six ounces. And, um, they're really adorable. We use them for plants. You put little like succulents and things like that in there, which is kind of fun. Um, but usually with finished wine, you are going through more of a fining process. Uh, you're doing a little more racking. You know, these, especially the wines that are that see barrel, were taking out of the barrel before they were complete in the barrel. Um, and you know, there is kind of this arc of of life that a wine will have in barrel where they kind of reaches its optimum peak when it's going to be its best, and then after too much time in the barrel, it becomes too over. Saturated with those kind of intense barrel flavors and aromas, and when it's pulled out a little early, you don't really have the full integration of fruit and and barrel at that point. Um, but what it does, it gives us a chance, gives consumers oftentimes a chance to try some of these wines and kind of really get a sense of where those wines are going. And it's kind of the difference between seeing a teenager now and who they'll be as an adult. Um, you know, so you can get a sense when someone's 15, 16 years old, how they're going to carry themselves when they're 25 or they're 35 years old. And that's kind of the idea of barrel samples. So in, in a way, is this the, uh, is this like Beaujolais Nouveau? You know, where it's, it's a preview of the, uh, of the vintage when it's done. It's a, I know that's not a barrel sample, but it's yeah. the same idea where you're getting an idea, you're getting a conceptually what, what this vintage has to offer, um, just not on the same scale of production. I have to say no, because okay. Nouveau, no, I know. I think, yes, I think how Beaujolais Nouveau started originally was a celebration of the vintage. And let's see what this vintage is going to be like. Um, and so we're going to do sell these wines that are called Impromu, which means like first or first release, whatever. Um, and it was just kind of an idea. This is what our vintage is like. This is a celebration of the vintage. But then it became kind of a thing where people just drink Beaujolais Nouveau. Um, and not the style. Yeah. So now it's a style, exactly. Um, but I think within its essence and within its history of what it set out to be, yeah, I would say it's, it's actually pretty similar. I just wanted to be contrarian in that moment. No, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I just called uh, the Grand Cru Vaudecia Chablis that I'm drinking the equivalent of Beaujolais Nouveau. So <laughs> you can be contrarian all you want. <laughs> <laughs> they would uh they would roll over the grip so yeah i think the first thing to to really you know kind of key in with these wines um maybe it's to really talk a little bit about the winery um or i don't know no let's talk let's because we talked about the history of burgundy in our very first yeah. um episode benchmarks which is oddly enough one of our best um one of our best listen to podcasts well you know it's uh talking about it's burgundy you know everyone loves burgundy it's hot yeah. right now yeah uh we just picked up some fans in romania which is kind of cool Ooh, yeah that's fun that's fun um but uh yes i mean do you do you want to touch a little bit because you know you have that that degree behind you oh um, yeah about some of the history of of burgundy like who are the first people to like plant there and why yeah, so I mean, the so Burgundy has, you know, at this point, essentially, 
I mean, look, it's it's got a thousand plus years of uh, of history with 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 the mine, right? And I, I probably said this in that that episode that we did. We love to attribute the monks as these like brilliant vignerons who are out in Burgundy searching for the perfect place to plant Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and oh like and they found the spot and they did it. That's half accurate. Yeah, uh, I think I uh, think the word you used was frolicked. Yeah, yes. Ooh, yeah, I, I like frolicked, the word frolicked. Frolicked or traversed. You, you know, frolicking through the fields. But what was really going on, there's always this tension between the monarchies of Europe, all of them, and the papacy, always. And you know, where does the citizens of a of a place, where's their loyalty lies? To the church or to the is to the crown or whoever is in power at that time, right? Um, and what you you had this back and forth. So what happened, you know, at you know, some 1400 years ago, whatever it is now, is that the kings of, of France were like, look, um, whoever controls the food supply, you know, keeps the people happy. So we're gonna give the church, we're gonna award them land we're going to give them the least fertile product, you know, soil, the worst place to grow crops you possibly can. And uh, so they can't feed the masses. So they, they need to come to us for, for food. And as many and I have probably said numerous times that it's places where you normally grow crops, the, the vine does well because the vine likes to struggle. So they, what, you, what you do have to give the monks and the, and the clergy credit is they figured out that these places would be great for, for Vitus Vinifera. And they did such an amazing job of, of studying and plant and note-taking. They found the best places for Shad and for Pinot. They, you know, they set everything up into these different plots and named them and so on. This the origins of Grand Cru and Premier Cru and, and, and so on. And they were making the best wine in, in France that became the, the wine of kings you know, and became the wine that was used by the papacy and, and so on. So, um, all while frolicking, which is and traversing. adorable. And traversing. <laughs> yes. And traversing. Do, monks, do monks frolic? I mean, can we, we, we got, there's going to be a photo someplace of a monk frolicking, right? Oh yeah. I mean, they wear those dresses. I mean, it's you know? Athens. Yeah. Why wouldn't you frolic? <laughs> so, but yeah, so that's the, that's kind of the, the basis of, and look, all, all that work that they did, plotting out land and saying this place does this and that does that, and this should be grown here and whatnot, that's kind of what we're still using today as these are the best spots to, to plant Chardonnay in, in Pinot Noir, arguably in the world. I mean, if you're talking to us, yes, in the world. Some other people would disagree with us, but. Well, they would be wrong. <laughs> it would be 100% wrong. No, I mean, yeah, like that, that's, that, that um, I love that, that image, though, you know that that struggle between the church and between uh you know the kingdoms because that was a real thing and it still is you know um in many ways politically and you know people always say within our industry oh because we work in sales you can't talk politics but the reality is politics is always involved in wine production um you know most of the wine regions i say this all the time in not just in Europe, even in the New World or, or in the Americas, because the New World is just as old as the Old World and had its own history. But all of these regions were planted based on some sense of conquest, you know, whether it was controlling 
uh, northern France and Champagne, which is where Clovis became king of France, uh, or cre uh, controlling Rioja, or controlling the northern Rhone, if you were the Romans, you controlled the waterways into France, or Bordeaux. It's the same in California. The missionaries planted in Sonoma, they planted in Santa Barbara, um, and they used that in a way to convert people from their, their native indigenous religions to Christianity or in South America. So it always kind of followed this, um, which I think is an important thing to, to talk about, but there's always this struggle in that same sense, you know, and then in Burgundy, it really came to a head in, in the, um, after the French Revolution, because Burgundy for the most part was controlled by the monarchs and by um, the clergy. And when Napoleon came through, they kicked all these people out. And uh, in fact, one of the one of the wineries that we uh, talk about quite a bit is Jean Claude Boisset, located in a village called Nuit Saint Georges. Um, their winery is called Le Ursuline, which means the nunnery, because it was a nunnery, and the nuns were chased out by Napoleon. Um, you know, which is definitely not as fun as the idea of monks frolicking, but they were all chased out, and then they kept the that namesake in kind of an honor of these nuns. Um, and then you have what we now call, and in, in really the, the birth of Burgundy today, which is what we call the negociant. Negociant are, are to negotiate, literally. And those are people that, um, oh, hold on, I have to close this email before I get a notification. Right? Uh, but those are the people that built Burgundy. And those are like wineries like Albert Bichot, um, like Bouchardani, like uh, Louis Jado, you know, and we love the idea of the grower producer of the vigneron going out there and picking the grapes and smelling the soil and bottling his own wine, but that's a hard thing to do. And people like Albert Bichot helped create the industry that oftentimes many geeky wine people will kind of hate on because they're, they're not always the grower. Um, and you know, but there would be no Burgundy today without people like, like Bichot. Yeah. So the the if we've explained this before, you might have even done it slightly, um, but it's the it's it's the inheritance law that that creates this problem. So when Napoleon booted everyone from you know from Burgundy and, and gave the land back to the people, one of the things he did was okay. You know, no one no one can take this land from you, and and when. You know, if you're a family, when you pass away, uh, your land is split equally between your children. So if you're a, a French family and you have, let's say, five kids and you have a hectare of land, it gets split when the when the patriarch dies, it gets split, um, you know, five ways. Cool. Well, what if those five kids have five kids? Now that one hectare of land has been each have five kids. Now that one hectare that was split five ways has now been split 25 ways. That's just in two generations. Now what happens the next time? So, and, and this is now, I'm assuming that every single child from these families wants to, to tend the vine, right? Or, or, or make wine. They don't all want that. But because of all sorts of reasons, you know, tradition and whatnot, it's a big deal. So you don't, you don't want to sell it because it's been in your family for generations or, um, or you, 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 don't, you want to keep it, but you don't want to make wine because 
you only have a row and you can't make, you can't put all that into a barrel because it won't give you enough juice. This is why you need the negotiant. Otherwise those, those vines, that juice, those grapes that could make absolutely gorgeous wine get, get wasted. This is why you get co-ops too. Cooperatives sometimes get frowned on a little bit because the, the fruit's coming from all these different places. But if you only have a couple rows to till and you don't want to sell it to someone else and you still want to make it, you have to, you need enough juice to put in the barrel to make wine. So you find someone else who has the same problem and you cooperate and you make a wine together that's still yours. Um, and that's, that's where the word comes from. I had no idea. I'm right. I just, it's the, maybe I am the expert, Manny. Words are hard. That's right. Very hard. Chardonnay, hard. Chardonnay, kid. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that is so true. And then, and then what ends up happening when these, you know, families that have, it started with a hectare, which is, you know, roughly 25 and a half, or, or two and a half acres, rather, get split up 25 ways. And they don't want to, and maybe they have parcels from, you know, from all over Burgundy. Um, and the thing is like a parcel and a vineyard are, are different things. A vineyard is the actual plot of like larger plot of land that has a single under a single name to it. So, uh, yeah. for example, the wine that I'm drinking is from a vineyard called Vakopan. Now within Vakopan, there are several small parcels. Um, which could be just a row of vines or two rows of vines, or maybe a half of a row of vine, and that's it, and that's owned by one person. So you might have several parcels throughout Burgundy, but it's not enough to actually make wine. And you can either maybe sell those grapes off, you can go into a co-op, or you can say, you know what, I can't, I don't have the infrastructure to make the wine myself, I'm going to sell it to a bigger company or, or a bigger family, and they'll start making the wine, or... I'm going to sell them my parcel. And that's what ended up happening with Bichot. So when they started, they were a traditional negociant, which is actually buying oftentimes finished excess wine and blending it and bottling it and putting their own name on it. And over the years, they've acquired now six domains from all the way up in Chablis, which we're both drinking Chablis today, um, down to Beaujolais, which you're actually drinking. So it's kind of cool that you have it from from start to finish and um you know it's it's an important aspect to understand about a lot of these winemakers jado is the same way you know if you get a bottle of jado you can look at the bottom and if it just says jado on it it's negociant wine which basically means that it's purchased fruit they're not they have a winemaker so they're not buying finished wine they're actually making the wines but hold on one second it's weird recording with a household people um let's see where was i oh so if you get a bottle of louis jadot you know it says just jadot on it it's a negociant wine meaning that they purchased all that fruit they didn't purchase finished wine or or must or unfinished wine they have a winemaker frederick Badier, who's amazing and um but if you get a bottle of jadot it says domain on it like domain gaget domain jadot they own that property and they're a big landholder in burgundy yeah. albert bichot has 240 acres of land in burgundy they are the fourth largest grower in burgundy so they are a grower producer and when it comes to chablis um which is from their domain called lung de Bequis, they own 
I think 160 acres. So most of their holdings that they own are actually in Chablis. They're the largest landholder in Chablis. Um, Adam is drinking a Grung Crew. Um, and they own 10% of the ground crews within Chablis, which is an insane amount of property. So, you know, this is grower producer, I think, at its finest. It is, it's crazy when you think about that, that 10% in ground crew, because again, depending on the, the wine nerd you speak to, Grand Cru Chablis is, well, even if we just go by price point, Grand Cru Chablis is some of the most expensive wine, not just white wine, expensive wine um, in, in the world, depending on where, where, where it comes from. Um, certainly, some, certainly white wine. And it, I mean, they'll tell you that it is the, it's the highest expression of Chardonnay. And that, that's one family that has, you know, 10% of, of all the holdings. And it's just, it, it, it is, it, it's crazy to think of that that they have that that influence and and they and they do and i mean look it's they make beautiful wine so i'm okay with it uh, oh, absolutely and and the domain itself so they purchased on the bequee in the i think in the 60s or 70s but the domain itself actually dates back to the 1560s there was a monk once again always monks that that started off uh, i mean they had nothing else to do other than traverse make bread make beer make cheese and make wine um and he wanted to leave monastic life and become a family man he wanted to get married have kids and so he left the monastery ended up purchasing uh, a good amount of property from the monks including the parcel and the wine that i'm having which is my background is called a single premier fruit vineyard called Bakupan. Um, and so just once again to kind of tie into the hierarchy of burgundy you have your entry-level Burgundy, which are called regional wines. That's when it just says Bourgogne, uh, which is the French word for Burgundy. And then you have from there village-level wines like Chablis, um, which is a single village. And then you have what's called Premier Cru, which are single vineyard wines that are uh, historically extremely important, um, have a legacy of producing beautiful fruit, and then, which is what I'm drinking, and then you have what Adam has, which is the very top of the pyramid. It's about maybe less than a percent or about a percent of all wine producer of Burgundy is called Grand Cru or Great Growth. So Bacopan is unique because where it sits, so Chablis itself in this village, it's pretty high north. It's a very cool climate. They have these awesome soils called Kemerigian soils which are um, extremely chalky and produce a lot of minerality. They're really old, old soils. They give the wines a ton of finesse and minerality. Um, there's not a ton of water retention to them, so the, the vines really have to dig deep to kind of pull up the nutrients, which for wines that are un, they're not oak-aged can really um, create a lot of personality and, and, and some really awesome aromas. Um, the village of Chablis itself is really in the heart of the wine region and there is a river that runs through it called the Sarin River and on the uh, north part is where the Grand Cru Vineyard is which is all south facing. On the south part of the river you see a lot of the very famous Premier Cru's like Bayonne or Moman um, but those are all kind of somewhat north facing slopes. Bacopan is on it is south facing. So it's on the same 
side of the river as the ground crew. So you get some of the same sun exposure. So you get a little more concentration to it. Um, now, what I think is really cool about, uh, oh, and you get also a ton of like fossils in these soils. You can actually dig in these vineyards and pull up like little seashells, which really puts this kind of phosphorus kind of minerality to the wine, which is makes them great with oysters. But um, when we talk about Chablis, oftentimes people talk about this kind of steely, minerally quality. And that traditional Chablis is all aged in stainless steel. And I always have to remind people that stainless steel wasn't first used in France until 1961 by, I think it was Latour. Uh, they were the first producer to use stainless steel. Other, before that, people were fermenting in either concrete or in oak vats. And so old school traditional Chablis, I mean, I'm talking like 80 years ago, 100 years ago, was all neutral barrel. And so this is mostly stainless steel, but we have about 15% of um, three to five year oak barrel. So it's not imparting an oaky aroma. It just gives the wine a little more structure to it. Well, and then just the, the acid too. I mean, <clears throat> the acid levels are so high. The, I mean, we've talked about this before. When, if you tell me that you, you love or hate, you tell me you're feeling on Chardonnay, either way, you've effectively told me nothing. Because depending on where it's coming from in the world, yeah, it could be so dramatically different. That's not even going into winemaker intent and what they're doing in the in the winery to manipulate. It, you know, with how they're, you know, is, does it go through malolactic fermentation and, and so on? But I mean, both wines that we have, I'm assuming, went through 100% mallow. I don't have a tech sheet in front of me, but they did. Malolactic yeah. fermentation is the process that takes the the harsh malic acids and softens them into lactic acids which is where you get that buttery flavor texture, you know, in, in some California and Chardonnay or other Chardonnays in, in, in general. Um, but the, the acid's so crazy in, in Chablis and in Burgundy, you still put it through that process and you don't get that buttery rich profile because of the type of acid that's there. And I, I think that's the thing too, is you, you know, when you, when you oak a wine with that much acidity, um, you, you, you balance the flavor profiles that you would extract from the oak. So yeah, you're not getting that um, that necessarily over the top minerality you would out of a stainless steel tank, but you're still getting some of it because the acid level is just so high. It's still yeah. present. Yeah, and, and the cool thing about these wines, you know, entry level Chablis, you can, you can age for five, six, seven years easily. Yeah. You can't really do that with even a lot of high-end California Chardonnays. But which, uh, when you get to Premier Cru, so 2020 um, was a warm vintage. It was an early vintage. You know, they were harvesting in late August, you know, from all the way Chablis all the way down south, uh, which is unusual. I think it was the hottest vintage on record since 2003. And you would think you would lose a lot of the minerality or a lot of the acidity and it would just be so much fruit to it. Uh, but what you have in the end is a wine that's maybe a little texturally a little richer, but that acidity, that freshness is still there. Um, you know, Chablis is an area that typically struggles with, with cold climate, um, struggles with frost. In fact, why is 2020 to me such a special vintage? First of all, it's going to be the last time we're going to be able to taste these wines at a reasonable cost based on what these wines typically cost, because we're looking with Premier Cru Chablis in that mid fifties, uh, Grand Cru, you know, 120, $130 is typically where they cost. 
um, we're going to be looking to double next year because Bichot, for example, lost 75% of fruit in Chablis. It's crazy. That is insane. It's, it's ridiculous. So, you know, if we made this much wine, which I'm holding my hands out, like maybe like a foot and a half, two feet wide, that's how much wine we made. In 2021, we're going to make a quarter of that. It takes a couple of years for the vines to regenerate and 2022 already has a little bit of frost. I don't think it's as bad as 21. We're going to make less wine. So in 2023, 2024, these wines are going to be extremely expensive. Um, you know, Burgundy is not cheap and, and there's entry level Burgundy that is good. It's just kind of simple, straightforward, but Burgundy is always at the mercy of mother nature. Um, always because they're they're not blending especially when you're talking about what we call these like climats which are these small single vineyards we're not talking about blending multiple vineyards maybe there are vineyards in chablis that you know weren't as affected by the frost but we can't blend it in with bacopan and call it bacopan or with the ground crew that you're drinking and call it that um we can't blend in you know okay well aligote is a grape now that is you're seeing more and more in burgundy which is this high acid more in like uh, Southern or Central Burgundy, but this high acid grape, but because it's getting warmer, um, the wine's getting richer. And so you can't add that into these wines. You are kind of stuck with the varietals that you have. And that makes it extremely challenging going to that next vintage or having a bad year. Well, and, and also to the, when we talk frost, when we talk hail, hail's another problem that Burgundy has often. You know, why don't you put up nets? Why don't you just add heaters? You know, why don't you protect? Well, that infrastructure is really expensive. Um, so, yeah, the, it, it, it's expensive up front, sure. Um, would it help you long term? Maybe in some capacities. Um, but again, if you if you have a vineyard that's owned by like I don't know, thirty people. You know, it, it might be a difficult thing to negotiate putting a heater. You're going to put a heater up with somebody else's grapes. I don't know. Maybe you want to, maybe you don't. Do you put up hail nets in a place where sunshine and, and warm for are a struggle? Because hail nets are going to, you know, screw with, with your sunshine and it, it can create more shade. Um, and especially for a place that is as terroir obsessed as Burgundy. You know, I mean, all these climats that we're talking about, the reason that you can't blend them, the reason that um, everything's so mapped out is because the the place is so important. If you alter the climate in any way, are you taking away from the terroir? You know, <clears throat> depending on who you speak to, absolutely. Like, yeah, you know, you, I'm sure they will lament the frost in 21, but the wine's going to taste distinct because of the frost that year and, and, and so on. It'll still, it'll be a snapshot of, uh, of, of the, of the place. So there's, there's real considerations. It's not as, you know, I'll, I'll never forget. I, I asked, uh, he'll remain nameless, but I asked, uh, a, a California, you know, winemaker, his feelings on irrigation and, and terroir. And he's like, 
it probably changes it because I'm I'm watering with water that's not actually here. Sure, if you want to, you know, if you were from Burgundy, he cited Burgundy, you'd make the argument that I don't have terroir anymore. But I'm never going to lose my crop because it's too hot. They lose yeah. theirs all the time. So you know, six one way, half dozen the other. But, yeah, and, <laughs> and I think too in Burgundy, when you have these families that have been, you know, own these vineyards for generations. Yeah, they're not paying uh investors they're not paying hedge fund managers they're not paying uh board of directors for the brand i mean they they are in some ways and, and like the show does make straight up negociant purchase fruit um you know they do make wines that are entry-level wines they have some properties in the south of france uh not just from another label they, that that um bisho usa uh, is importing but things that go into the bisho label and those wines are revenue drivers you know those are the wines that maybe in a year given year we might sell you know 800 to 1000 cases locally but it's these very small parcels that the family owns that they can not that they can afford to lose a vintage but they kind of think in, in terms of a long game yeah. like okay we can pivot other ways but this history is is really important you know um what is also really important adam is the wine that that you are drinking what are you drinking the one that i'm drinking now yeah well wait, wait, wait hold on did you already go through your your chablis no i just you know i changed it up why not all right let's let's jump this we can talk about the chablis so yeah no but i so i have um the wine that i was drinking before um, oh, there we go is if we can see it in my is the uh grand cru um lavodicier which is one of the um seven clamats that are make up the the grand cru in, in chablis and it is known for making powerful and uh rich ripe uh ripe fruit forward Chablis. So not as known for that, st that steely minerality here, more fruit, more power, um, which it absolutely has. Um, the, the acid backbone is there, I don't mean to take away from that, but there is a, there's almost, a, okay, let me back up for a minute. When I, when I think Chablis flavors, um, you know, uh, green apple, slightly sour things come to mind because of that acidity um you know uh again like lemons lemon zest because again because that, that that is acidity in in combining with the, the profile this almost what has kind of lemons are they maya lemons are they uh sorrento lemons what kind of lemons? you just want me to say maya that's all that's what you want <laughs> yeah maya lemon guy if i say sorrento cheer will kill me i can't say that <laughs> uh but the this is almost a little tropical um, in, in, in its ripeness. You know, I get a little more stone fruit. I get um, on the nose, I definitely get a, a little more tropical fruits. You know, it, it's a little bit of pineapple, a little bit of mango. It's, it, it, it's, it's cool. And again, it's that, it's the terroir of Vodicier and what makes it so different from the other areas, not just in in Chablis versus Premier Cru and Village and whatnot, but the six other Clamats in the in the Ground Crew area. 
So really cool wine, beautifully made. And I think that that was actually one of the um, vineyards or one of the parcels that um, actually his name was Dipaqui. So Long Dipaqui was a family name. I, I, I think it was like Jean Dipaqui was the monk that I was talking about earlier. But those were one of the that was one of the first parcels that he purchased. And what's really cool about the show, so there is a secret, super secret, double secret, eight parcel um, that is monopoled called Le Mouton. And it is owned exclusively by Bichot. They're the only ones that can make it. So even if someone bought fruit from them or had fruit from them, they couldn't label it as Le Mouton because it's been grandfathered into, into the Chablis Grand Cru. Um, it is right in between, or it's parts of Valdeciers and parts of Proyus, which is right to the west of, of Valdeciers. So it's a small little, little subplot that is iconic. I mean, it's like the Valdeciers, I think, like I was saying, would retail for like 130 bucks a bottle. The Mouton, um, probably closer to 200. You know, and I haven't had uh, Mouton in three or four years, which I lament because they're really, really, really cool wines. I have never had a Le Mouton, so... Um, Just take my word for it, it's really good. So it's stop fun. complaining about it. it being four years. It's been 30, whatever it is. How long? How long? <laughs> it's been 39. Today, today years old. Um, I mean, yeah, I think like... Like the Grand Cru's and Chablis are really special. And these are wines that can really age for a long time. Yeah. They have a lot of longevity without having all that intense oak to it that we typically think of a wine needing to be age worthy. You know, the, the Mouton does like minus 15%, I think yours is 30% oak, one to five years. Um, but one thing they also have been doing, which I think gives the wine a lot of weight, and Bichot in general has been playing with this, even with the red wines, Alain Servaux, they're, they're main winemaker uh, who oversees the six estates. They have different winemakers in each estate, but he kind of oversees the general style and, and kind of the mission statement of the winery has been really playing with whole cluster fermentation. And they're doing that with the Chardonnay uh, rather than destemming. And that I think really gives that kind of like lush, rich backbone to, to the wines, even the Premier Cru or even the Chablis, their their village level Chablis has a lot of that that kind of rounder structure to it, which is yeah. awesome. And the thing too, you know, when when we when we talk about ageability, just because we think of reds, um, and reds happen to be in oak, so you, so you might want to go, oh yeah, well it's it's the the oak is part of what gives it the age. And we're breaking down what makes the wine age, you know, age-worthy. Oak might be the last thing that we talk about. You know, we're talking acid, we're talking alcohol, we're talking, um, you know, probably first and second. And then, you know, the, then we're talking, you know, tannic structure um, and, and so on. The, the acid is so important in ageability. Uh, you know, it, it's why the the ice wines of, of Germany and and um, um, I'm blanking. You know the um, Niagara. Yeah, like age for for so long. It's the one of the reasons the the acid is is really high. Those things are racy as anything. 
Yeah. Um, you know, Chateau de Chem is the acid is insane. It's not just sweet. The acid is ridiculous. So we have that crazy high acidity in these Chablis. So it's they're 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 going to go. It has disruption. And it makes some amazing, amazing food wines. Um, you know, they they are in in such a ubiquitous way. You know, where California's in, you know, we kind of go to barbecue, which kind of makes sense, but because of the acidity these wines work well with seafood i steak and chablis is amazing because of that acid um you know they're not going to get a big oaky like a big napa cab um in burgundy when they have steak because that's not what they make <laughs> you know they make pinot noir and chardonnay and they're gonna pick, they're gonna make it so it works well together and the food in these areas in these northern climates are really rich you know, yeah, is this is Chablis good with a nice little salad? Sure, but it works really well with um, any kind of rich, gamey flavor. It works well with anything with anything with a lot of cream and butter, because that's mm -hmm. the food they do in northern France. Um, I think I said oysters, which works because of the minerality and and the the, the little fossils in there. Um, there was one more thing I was thinking that would be killer. With it, oh, fried food, fried frog's legs. In fact, one of the Grand Cru parcels in Chablis is called Grand Louis, which means frog. So um, that's kind of a peanut butter jelly pairing suggestion. Sorry, Kermit. <laughs> so um, fantastic. So let's let's talk about um, about your wine, your Fleury. Oh yeah. So um, picture. So I went with the the Cru Beaujolais barrel sampling because one I I I, I love Fleury uh, I think they're they're, they're beautiful wines um, we we see so much at least we well we don't see lots of Cru Beaujolais in, in our book with, with what we sell um, but when we do it tends to be Moulin Avant or Morgan in particular um, which are really nice wines but they're a little more little more powerful i like the I, i'm um Fleury is described as as feminine which um you know whatever that means but i think you know elegant might be uh, a, a better a better term um and yeah, wine, wine has no gender yeah like it's i i i i get why it's said that way but you know it's to to, to me it's 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 elegance it's floral um and the, they 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 tend to be uh, a little softer on the palate as, as opposed to powerful um so i it, i like it's a style that i enjoy when i'm uh, I, i've always enjoyed when i'm drinking Beaujolais or, or pinot in general and this is uh, this so the the grand cru chablis is it's a beautiful wine it's going to be a beautiful wine one of the things about white burgundy especially at this level they almost tell you not to drink it right away it's going to close down it's not going to be as expressive as it will be five six seven eight you know however many years down the road you're not going to get what you need to get out of it unless you wait that that time and it's interesting having these side by side because this flurry is it's so expressive it, I, uh, and I know it's, it's not finished yet, 
but it is so expressive. There's so much going on. I actually like it a bit more than the Grand Cru Chablis. And, and uh, yeah, I know. You know I'm, I, but I, I'm, but that, again, but that, that's it though. Like it's, this is going to be, the Fleury is going to be ready to drink sooner than the, than the Grand Cru Chablis. So it, it, it it's expressing more. Um, and like, what's cool about this from my perspective too, with this Fleury that I'm having right now, Blind tasting is, you know, what it's a skill. Clearly, people can do it, um, but I, there's a there's something about oh, all wine from this one place tastes like blah 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 or or whatnot. Um, this is if you're reading a description out of a, a you know a wine book about what Fleury is supposed to taste like, it kind of tastes like this. This is. If, so, if I had to give someone a, a glass of Fleury and say, this is what wine from this place is supposed to taste like based on the, the way they benchmark themselves. I mean, it, it, it's this, it, the, 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 the flowers, the, the, the fruit aromas, the structure, everything. This is just a really pretty wine. So what, what makes it like, you know, in terms of like the flavors you're talking about, what do you? Um, so we're roses, violets, um the at first i was getting more um you know more violet than rose now i'm getting more rose than violet um but it's either way it's it's there right away um it's you're you're putting your face in a bouquet of flowers when you when you know you, you stick your nose in this wine and then it's the it's red berries it's it, it not not over ripened, just um, just just red berries, raspberry in particular uh, is one of the things I'm getting. I'm getting a little bit of strawberry, um, but just you know, ripe red fruit. Yeah. And I I, uh, I had that wine um, that sample I tried about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and that when you mentioned raspberry, you know. It was literally like when you when you've ever picked a fresh raspberry and you know it's ripe because you don't have to tug at the on the, the branch or whatever, it just comes right off. And there is a floral kind of sour pop aroma to it that, that wine just like carries. And and when you bite it, it's weird because when you bite into to the raspberry, obviously you can start feeling the texture of the seeds and the crunch of the seeds. For some reason in that wine I could smell it. Yeah. it's 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 so good and the, the other thing it does too is it has it's just a hint of it um in i think all the best beaujolais has this to a certain extent there's just a there there's that tertiary baking spice there's just a little bit of cinnamon um you know and, and I, i'm not getting it now i did it first a little a little bit of like nutmeg um gingerish kind of in the background it's not overwhelming it's not overpowering um but it's it's just it's there there's that little bit of sweet baking spice um kind of at, at the end that creeps up on you that's just cool to experience when you have it for the first time um because you don't you're not necessarily looking for that type of flavor profile but it's it's definitely there you know and it's so yeah. It's so funny because I've never heard you uh, go into such an in-depth description of wine ever. 
and I've never seen you seem more giddy with a wine <laughs> right now. With it's uh, really good, man. Like it's <laughs> really Fleury. good. Would you? Because I know you have a thing for rosé. Would you? Would you call Fleury like the rosé of red wine, kind of? Just that that overall like enjoyable drinkability. It's you know it can be complex. That you know what that might be why I like it so much. That actually, you know, that that could be why tangentially, like that might be one of the reasons it, it's it lines up with, you know, my like it's it makes sense, right? Because I like I like the style of of rosés and in, in this. I mean, yeah, it's that that makes sense. Um, I mean, too, it's like it's, and this is the thing with me now. I can't, I can't crush 15 and a half degree alcohol wine anymore, like multiple glasses. Like even if we're having a great dinner, I get halfway through that sucker and I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to die. This thing is too big. I can't, I can't do this. Um, the softer, lower ABV, um, but still with the complexity of flavor wines, I just really appreciate, you know, um, and it just, I can... I can have a second or third glass and one not be drunk, which is nice yeah. uh, and not feel full or whatnot, like weighed down by it. Uh, and, and that seems to be my approach to, to everything right now in the direction that I'm going. That's uh, awesome. So yeah, to me, it's so amazing because, you know, when you talk about that, because all these wines, I'm looking at the next one that I have, which is red and it's 13% um, is what they say. It could be 13.5. You know, but for a vintage that was hotter and earlier yeah. than 2003, which was a devastatingly hot vintage. And at that time, Burgundy wasn't used to dealing with these hot vintages. They were dealing with cooler, more moderate vintages or, or rainy vintages. And so they didn't know how to actually, I think, make good wine back then. I mean, obviously, Burgundy has been making great wine forever, but they didn't know how to deal with that condition. Well, now, you know, uh, 17, 18, 19, 20 were hot vintages. Even with the frost in 2021, it was still a very warm vintage, you know, but what they've been able to do, and I think uh, Bichot has done it so well, is really learn how to create a balance because 2003 wines, when they were released, didn't, which would have been 2005, 2005, 2006, when I first had them, were completely a, off balance. Um, the alcohol was way too high. You're looking at wines that were 14.5 and um, that's unheard of for Chardon Pinot from, from France. And yeah. now they're able to figure out how to produce wines, how to ferment wines in a way that they are fully dry. When do we harvest? When do we pick? Uh, what they, they do more of a berry selection would be show. So they'll, they'll do sorting tables really important. So they'll take those grapes that are too sun-baked and they just get rid of them. They don't, I don't think they even sell them off. They can just get rid of them. Um, they're using more whole cluster fermentation, which once again gives that more velvety richness to it. Um, which I think is amazing because when we did the love letter to Beaujolais back in November, both of those wines were 15, 15, five, you know, and you know, yours is, is much lower. Now, can you just refresh quickly, um, since you're drinking it, I'm not, um, Beaujolais a little bit as opposed to the other parts of Burgundy for 
And and what is behind me? Uh, so is that, is that Lamadan? I believe yes, it is. That's, yeah. that's the that's the Lamat that I'm drinking Um Beaujolais is the most southern area of well, depending on who you speak to now. Um, it's the very bottom of Burgundy, or it's the separate region just below the rest of, of Burgundy. Uh, I mean, it, it, it should be its own region because it, it, it's Burgundy makes Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, a little bit of Aligoté, a little bit of other, a couple of things, but in general, that's what they do. Um, Beaujolais is all about Gamay. You might find a Beaujolais Blanc somewhere. Uh, if you do, it's like less, literally, it's, there's like 500 acres, if that, of white planted in it's it's next to nothing, uh, but it's going to be Chardonnay when you do find it. it it's all about Gamay, and um, while they are, you know, it's a similar classification where you have, you know, regional village uh, and 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 crews, but it, it's that it's that southernmost point. Uh, it's all about Gamay. The um, there are ten crews which are in, I always forget this, if it's the southern part or the northern part. Um, I believe it's the southern part, but I'm gonna, it's the northern part, of course it is. Thank you, Manny. You're welcome. I don't know why I always forget that. I just, I think in my head, I, I think that because the, 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 southern, the southern part of the Mackinac, which, is, which borders Beaujolais, is, is all white. Mm -hmm. So I just think in my head, okay, the further we get away from the Mackinac, the better it's going to be for, and the closer we get to the Rhone, the better it's going to be for, you know, for, for, for the red wines, but it's not, it's the Northern pot. It's just, you know, well, it's, the, it's the soils. Cause I think yeah. cause like in, in the Mackinac, it's mostly limestone. There's some clay, there is some granite. And then you have this huge outcrop of granite where the Northern bush is and then the Southern part's all limestone and clay again. You know, and that's where, like, I think most of the Beaujolais Nouveau comes from, from the south. Um, and then you go back to granite. So it is actually, if you were to look at, like, the the layering of soils between southern Burgundy, like the Malconet, to the northern Beaujolais, to southern Beaujolais, then to the northern Rhone. And then the southern Rhone, you would kind of see this, like, um, leapfrog of soils. I mean, granite's what you want, though. Granite, granite yeah. tends to be the, 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 the best gamay. Um they do make some. They do make some pink in, in Beaujolais. Again, it's not a lot of it. Um, what we're really looking for, though, is the. I, technically, still, you can take some Beaujolais fruit and mix it into some Bourgogne regional. Mm -hmm. But in general, they uh, they're moving away from that. In general, they I think they want to be two separate, distinct areas. Um, yeah. there's a lot of history there, so. It, you know, it, it is what it is, but they're, they're moving towards being separate. Now, the, again, if you're, I'm, I have my French wine scholar book open, Beaujolais is not in the Burgundy section. It's its own section, you know, and it's, and they, they don't do that, for example, with Bordeaux, left bank, right bank. It's all in, it's all in the Bordeaux section, right? They're not making that much of a distinction with yeah. this, they're, they're, they're passing it out, so. Yeah, and um, I mean, I think historically, Beaujolais would have been um, planted first because they were all planted by the by Romans. Yeah. Um, when they went up to Rhone, past Leon, up to Sone. Um, anytime I, I can do that rhyme, I'm gonna do it, sorry. But 
It's either that or every time I can uh, tell everyone that I went to New Zealand and Australia, I'm, I'm going to do that. Um, but I mean, yeah, like that, that's, it was one of the first places planted in, in, it was planted before the Hill of Bougeau, before Mont Romane, yeah. way before Chablis, because it was just easier to get there. And I think the climate's a little more generous, you know, when you don't have the infrastructure built yet to actually take care of soldiers when it's, you know, freezing in the wintertime. Yeah. 100%. So the, the, the Lamadon, the, the, the photo that you have, um, is a, it's an old, it's an old church on top of a hill. It's one of the, it's one of the Clamats in, in Fleury. And what makes this one distinct from some other ones is where we're pink granite for our soil. So, um, you know, there's not much else mixed into this one. There is, um, as you go down the hill in other places, you, you will find some other things mixed in, but this is a really dry, poor soil, pink granite. So again, one of the better places to, to plant. Yeah. And especially Gamay. Gamay loves granite, which is why it was pulled up from the Cote d'Or or the Golden Slopes by Philip the Bold in the 14th century, uh, which is what I actually happen to be drinking because the soils here are different. Uh, apparently had a big bad hangover and decided that he didn't like Gamay in the villages of Vougeot or Gevry-Chambertin or Bonne or, or Pomard. And so they ripped up all the, uh, the Gamay grapes and they relegated them back to Beaujolais, which was a blessing because that's where they do really well. Pinot Noir does not do great in Beaujolais. Um, you know, Chardonnay can make some kind of almost like Macon Village kind of fun, but a little more floral style wines, but they're not serious. They're good wines, but they're not serious wines. And I think when you're in the level of you're drinking with, with Cru Beaujolais, which is still not in, I mean, it's, they're not crazy expensive. I think that would retail for like 30 bucks a bottle. Yeah. Um, maybe it's not your everyday wine, but it can definitely be your Friday night wine. And, um, you know, they're extremely expressive and I've never seen a Cru Beaujolais for 80 bucks a bottle, hundred dollars a bottle. They might be out there, but I've, I've never seen it. Yeah. You know, you're like 15, maybe 20 bucks to like mid thirties and you get wines that are, they're really rich and dense and they can be like when we did uh love letter Beaujolais, when you had the Moulin Avant, I had a Brulee, those wines are heavy. Yeah. You know, so they're, they're pretty diverse, which is pretty cool. So I am drinking actually one of my favorite villages and in my little backdrop here is the village of um, Von or Von Romane. And uh, this is probably, I would say, one of the most important villages in the world for Pinot Noir. So you're very fancy today with that. What's that? Very, very fancy with your Von Romane today. Uh, you know, some of the most expensive, actually the most expensive Pinot Noirs in the world, undoubtedly come from here. And uh, so this is really how this is where you have uh, most of the well-known ground crews, the most expensive ground crews throughout Burgundy, those great growths, that top tip of the pyramid, Romane Saint-Vivant, uh, Le Romane, Romane Cante, you have Richebourg, Latache, Clovujo is next door, you have Echezo next door, like just incredible. And 
it's not a large commune or village. And so if you were a village level wine, which is the humble level wine, you are not far from these super high-end vineyards. So the wine that I'm drinking is just Von Romanet. It's just the village wine itself, but it's coming from one of their domains called Clofrontin, which is um, a very, very small production. They have parcels in uh, Gevrechambretan all the way down to Nuit Saint-Georges. And uh, actually, no, they have another domain in Nuit Saint-Georges all the way down to Von Romanet. But this is coming from two small plots, one of them which is right next to the Grand Cru of Latache, and the other one is in between the Grand Cru of Richebourg and the Grand Cru of Clavougeau. So, I mean, you can walk to these Grand Cru vineyards within a minute. Um, you can throw a rock and hit a wine that's going to cost you 10 times the price. Still not going to be an inexpensive wine. You're still looking at a wine that's like 80, 90 bucks on the shelf, but you know, you can really get a sense of how dynamic the wines are. And, you know, my friend Alex, who actually works for Bichot, always, every time we would taste this wine with people a couple of weeks ago, he would always say, now be prepared to be slapped by the velvet glove because um, it's got a pop to it, but it's, vel it's straight up velvet, like really, really beautiful. What Bichot does when we get to this level of wine, between the village level wines, which would be like Bon Romanet, Pomard, Nuit Saint Georges, Chabertin, Santenay, or Merceau, they make the reds and the whites almost the same way. So we're around 16 months in oak vat, around 30, 35% new oak because the wines are aging a little bit longer. The wines need to age longer because we're, we, we are going to have an oak imprint to these wines, a little bit of new oak will actually um, maintain some of those oak kind of smoked aromas longer in the bottle. Uh, they're doing more whole cluster fermentation. And to me, this is just, this is the one wine I told Adam he couldn't use. But it's like a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful red. He doesn't want me to have nice things. Little did he know the flurry was drinking this well right now. So <laughs> not have that as well. But. I told you you could open the whichever one. I just I needed this one um, to show somebody, but um, which is why I can't drink the whole thing. But you know, to me, like they're just Von Romanet is special. Yeah, you are spending more money, but you are getting history here. I think historically one of the most important villages, and once again, small production. Every single village, or, or vineyard rather, is close to wine that might cost $8,000 a bottle. Yeah. And let's be honest, wines that are that much money, it's ridiculous because the people that can afford to drink those wines, I'm sorry, don't get it. They drink those wines because they can. I sh maybe I shouldn't say that, but I, I don't sell those in that particular producer I'm talking about, so I shouldn't really worry about it. But you know, it is a lot of hype. I actually had a, a Grand Cru a few days ago. I decided to just pop open, and the wine was really, really good. And is it a hundred dollar bottle of wine? Sure, but it probably would be closer to three fifty. And at that point, like I can't justify that. Not even just because I can't afford that, but you know, beyond that, it's when you start to really dive into the quality, it doesn't always make as much sense. Those are wines for collectors. Those are wines for people that, you know, want to hold on to them for 20, 30 years, maybe 
pop a bottle. I have a couple, you know, ground crews that I'll, I'll hold on to and, and, um, maybe in 10, 15 years, you know, drink my 2020 Eshazo, but, but past that, if you really want to kind of understand what those ground crew wines are like from, from this area in Burgundy in particular called the Cote d'Or, the Golden Slopes, which is why the slopes are golden behind me because the vineyards turned golden in the fall. It's a good entry point to really kind of understand what ground crew wines taste like when you're in this level. So and it's, wines that can age. So we, we don't have one today and I, they, they might not still do this. I don't know. There's a, Bichot made a, a tier of wines called Secret de Famille. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. Which the, the entire kind of concept at the time when I was, this was 11 years ago at this point, was the fruit from all of these that was going into these two wines, the Chardonnay and the Pinot, were vineyards that were adjacent to some of these really high-end vineyards. So um, it wasn't, you know, so it might it might not have been one that was next to the Grand Cruz in Beau but they'd be in Gevray Chambertin next to a, you know, next to Batard or whatnot. But it was so it would be all these these vineyards that were tangential to these super ludicrously expensive wines. And they were taking that fruit because it, it wasn't, it was just part of the village and blending it. And, you know, they could make a regular burgundy out of it, which they did. They just called, but it was the family secret because the, the parcels they were getting this fruit from were next to some of these, you know, super high-end areas that they were making beautiful wine out of. It. Um, so it's the, it was a cool way to get a feel for what some of those higher end wines might taste like. It's not the same thing. There's a reason those vineyards are designated as they are. It's not, yeah, there's some politics, but there's some quality there too. Yeah. But again, it's a window into that world. Yeah. And I would say it's less political than, you know, Bordeaux, where yeah. in the left bank, you know, you have the Medoc wines, we have the first, second, third, fourth, fifth growth and Cru Bourgeois. You know, that was all created by a panel of judges in 1855 based on historic importance based on maybe the quality of the wine, but also based on market share. So the more expensive wines got the best quality name. You know, Santa Milione has its own thing, which is, you know, kind of always a big cluster because people complain that they, they basically every 10 years for the Grand Cru Class A, they will um, vote on who gets elevated, who gets knocked down. And every single year within the last 20 years, 30 years, people have complained about it. And um, then it goes up to a, uh, you know, judgments and all this different stuff. But in Burgundy, the vineyards have been rated, many of them, you know, centuries ago or, or well over 100 years ago. Yeah. So at that point, Von Romanet is not getting any bigger. Maybe Bichot might have the opportunity to produce or, or purchase some more fruit from Von Romanet to make a little more wine. But they can't. Oh, there's an empty plot of land over there. Let's just plant there. They can't do it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not growing anymore. You can't add to the Grand Cru. Where in Bordeaux, Chateau de Cam or Mouton Rachille or Lafitte can buy a crappy domain next to them, buy that land, and that produces overabundance of fruit. And now it is part of this great chateau that costs thousands of dollars a bottle. In Burgundy, it doesn't work like that. You know, these vineyards are set. You can't put Grand Cru if it's not Grand Cru. There was actually a story of somebody who was taking some dirt 
from one of these ground crews and putting it like just went with a shovel and just like took a couple shovels full of dirt and put it with his fruit and they kicked him out of the Appalachian. So it's wow. it's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. Well, yeah, it, it, it's even just look look at a label the next time you're in the store. If you look at a label of uh, of a Burgundia, the produce like the producer's name's on the label. Don't get me wrong, but the biggest words on the label will be the place because mm -hmm. place is paramount when we're talking about Burgundy. Um, because uh, the uh, what they want, they want you to have an expression of the area, not the first, not the producer first. It's the area, and the, maybe it's the producer's interpretation of the area, but it's got to be indicative of that region they're getting the wine from. And if it's not, then they've they they haven't done what they set out to do. Yeah. So it's. It's really interesting. It's really different. It's cool. I'm obsessed with it, as everyone who you know who has listened to this knows or has run into me knows. <laughs> the commitment to terroir in Burgundy. There's a couple places that would argue otherwise, but it's it's difficult. Most places don't have the same commitment. Yeah, it's a it's a religion. It's on fleek, and in Burgundy, it's on fire. <laughs> Burgundy's hot right now. It is, you know, it's, it's, uh, and you know, when you get these poor vintages, like 2021, 2022, there's still going to be some great wine coming out of it, Yeah. but there's going to be a lot less of it. And what happens is when you, once you tell someone they can't have it, they want it. Yeah. And if they can afford it, they'll, they'll pay for it. Well, you know, it's interesting too. You made the comment earlier about how they're, they're learning how to work with these, these vintages better. My first vintage of Burgundy that I sold that it had just been released was 2009. And people were raving about the nines, raving about nines, how good they were and so on when they first came out. And then I want to say eight months into selling nine, I started getting people asking me if I had any eights because eight was a cooler vintage, but the acid there was there was more backbone there was more acid and the the nines well they were great right away they didn't have that kind of you know vibrant especially for the whites they didn't have that that vibrant that vibrant profile especially for you know for village level and up do you have any eight like saint ramon do you have any eight very classe do you have any eight like they were just do you have any of these eights you know left lying around because the just because it's warm or cold or frost or what whatever it, it is, that's not the in indicative of is the wine going to be good, bad, or, or, or indifferent. It's, um, you can have disasters happen and still get beautiful wine out of it. Or you yeah. can have, it could be perfect all summer long and then it rained at the wrong time in the, you know, in, in the fall and you can't pick when you need to and things get a little dicey. So... Well, there you have it. This is, uh, you know, it's funny because I was thinking, oh, how much time are we going to spend on this? Probably not a lot. And it's been about an hour and a half. Sounds right. <laughs> so I think on that note, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts? Any final ideas or? Drink more Fleury because it's really pretty. I love That's it. <laughs> All right. Awesome. 
Well, until uh, I'll let this out with a little bit more fire from the Black Pumas. Until next time, cheers. Be well, everyone. Smell!